Welcome to episode 45 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the pod, we will be weighing in on the latest entry in the Dexter Fletcher cinematic universe of musical biopics, Rocket Man, the story of former Watford football club chairman and also occasional rock star Elton John. But first, Scott, I have a question to pose to you. With this new rush of musical biopics that we've seen lately, is there a musician which you would like to see as a subject of the next one? Wow, you really sprung this question on me without giving me any time to think about this. Is there one that... It's got to be very organic. I mean, it's one of those things where I feel like I'm not that familiar with bands of that age, right? Like, I'm kind of excited to have something related to Bruce Springsteen coming out, because that's coming out later this year, that movie. Uh, I think Blinded by the Light. Yeah, yeah, Blinded by the Light. Obviously, that's not a biopic of Bruce Springsteen, but I like that that... I I think that that kind of movie is going to maybe vibe with my own personal movie preferences and, and tastes better than some of these movies. But because I'm just not that big of a fan of, you know, rock bands uh, of that, of that era yet, I don't know if I can pick one off the top of my head. As for, you know, 20, 30 years from now, I'd love to see something made about Coldplay just because they are one of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, not, I don't know if they would have an interesting story to tell. And if they didn't, then probably wouldn't make for a good music uh, or, or sorry, a good movie. Um, but, but Dexter Fletcher might still make it anyway. <laughs> yes, I think that Dexter Fletcher, regardless, would probably still make it. I know Muse is still making music, but you know Muse would be a band up there too, probably. But again, like, do these bands have interesting stories? I don't know. Does it matter? Probably not. Yeah, it's hard to come up with one off the top of my head. I know you'd probably love to see a Taylor Swift one made, but uh, is there one that comes <laughs> to your mind? Well, yeah. So, I mean, one of the reasons why I thought about the question was because I was thinking that I would love to see a Simon and Garfunkel biopic, not just because their music is amazing and they've written some of my favorite songs of all time, but because their relationship has also been very up and down over the years. Of course they broke up for a long time because of our, you know, creative differences, uh, but then eventually got back together in their older years and started doing some live shows. Um, so I actually think that they could make for a really interesting story in addition to, of course they have amazing music. So I'd love to see that one. I'm surprised there hasn't been like an Ozzy Osbourne one made at this point already. But it would be an interesting story to tell, probably. Yeah, interesting is one for it. (laughs) Yes. Well, uh, all right. Well, maybe we will see these biopics someday. But for now, we will have to be content with what we have, which is Rocket Man. So without further ado, let's blast off into our review, Scott. Directed by the aforementioned Dexter Fletcher, the uncredited director behind at least some of 2018's Oscar-winning Queen biopic Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man turns its focus to another huge 70s and 80s rock act. Elton John, who was born Reginald Dwight in Watford, England, and is played in this film by Taron Egerton. Neglected by both of his parents as a boy, Reginald turned to music and specifically piano for solace and immediately discovered that he had a burgeoning talent, if only he knew how to write lyrics. But when he meets aspiring lyricist Bernie Taupin, played by Jamie Bell, the two men form a fast friendship and partnership, which leads to some of the greatest rock songs ever written, including Tiny Dancer, Honky Cat, Daniel, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, and Your Song, just to name a few. 
But along the way, Elton struggles to balance his newfound success with his family troubles and hesitates to come to terms with his, se- with his sexuality, turning to substance abuse in the process. With a star-studded cast that also includes Bryce Dallas Howard and Richard Madden, Rocketman seems to have its sights set firmly on gold statues, just as Bohemian Rhapsody did last fall. Would you be happier to see it take home one of those statues than we were for Bo Rap, or will you once again be left scratching your head if this shows up in the nominations field? If there were some award to be presented at the Oscars, or frankly any award show this year that was Best Actor in a Musical Biopic of the last two years, I certainly would prefer Taron Egerton to win that, because I think that Taron Egerton's performance is better than Rami Malek's performance as Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, yes, you could say that Freddie presents a little bit more of a colorful character and eccentric personality to take ownership of and, and try to create for a screen. But two things that I think make this role ultimately surpass Rami Malek's for me, since the comparison is just right there in front of you, it's hard not to make it, is that one, and the really obvious one, I think, is that he sings. Taron Egerton sings, and boy, can he sing. It's amazing. Of course, there's only one Elton John, right? But Taron Egerton clearly has talent, and and he certainly does a good impression of Elton John's singing chops because he can sing. Like that's simply put. I mean, we all know, and it was much you know much talked about in the lead up to the Oscars this past year that Rami Malek doesn't sing a word uh, in Bohemian Rhapsody, and that's probably for the best. I think that that for me just makes a huge difference, right? Like he, he's he's acting in in a way that he's taking on the full character of Elton John. Because the second part of this is I also think he does a very confident performance as Elton John himself. And I know that I've talked so far only about Taron Egerton. But I think that's to say that I I do think that this movie is better and this performance is better than the low bar that, in my opinion, Bohemian Rhapsody set. Now, do I think that, again, audiences are going to go to the theaters, watch this movie and enjoy it? Yes, I do. But I don't think and I hope that it doesn't end up in conversations for the Oscar of next year, because I think that that would, again, lead me to think that and there's nothing wrong with this. I want to be really clear. There's nothing wrong with this, that that people were just voting, you know, voting with their hearts and something that they really enjoyed. And that, you know, because Bohemian Rhapsody was a very vanilla uh, display of, you know, homosexuality, the way people were treated and, and, uh, you know, an exploration of someone who really struggled with their sexuality. And I think for the most part. There really isn't too much different about Rocketman's portrayal of the same topics. I think that they brush the surface, hardly ever diving any deeper. And it's interesting because there are so many parallels between these two movies. You know, both movies have these like troubled relationships with individuals' parents. I think that Rocketman tackles that question a lot deeper and more thoroughly than Bohemian Rhapsody does. And then there's also the question, of course, of the person coming to terms with their sexuality and a a deep sense of loneliness. So a lot of the themes across these two movies are quite similar. And I think both ultimately do a poor job of exploring both of them. In some ways, Rocketman is a movie more about and more centered on those themes. And Bohemian Rhapsody is much more about Queen as, as... as a subject for the movie rather than just Freddy. And so in that sense, I think it it clears that bar a little bit better and does a little bit better production of if both of these movies are advertised as an analysis of these individuals' lives. And I think Rocketman does a better job of focusing on Elton John, whereas Bohemian Rhapsody, yeah, of course, Freddy's a critical part of the movie, but really it's a movie about Queen. And so I think I left the movie on Thursday night when I saw it feeling satisfied of that I wasn't misled in what the movie was going to be about. And, but I just didn't enjoy the movie that much. And I think that's because I'll own up and say that I don't know if these movies are for me. I don't know if these musical biopics are my thing. 
Or maybe I'm just not vibing with what Dexter Fletcher is trying to do with these movies. Again, I think that the performance from Taron Egerton was good. I think some of the you know supporting roles were you know good enough and and interesting and a delight. I mean, you mentioned, I think Bryce Dallas Howard is is good, but I don't think any of these performances. Even Richard Madden's, who you know, I'm such a, I am a big fan of Richard Madden. I don't think any of these performances are going to really stick with me very much. Not that they were bad, but just again, not very memorable. And so this movie kind of just fell flat for me. And to, of course, use the obvious pun, it just didn't take off. Yeah, I think I'm pretty much on the same page with you here, Scott. You know, you asked the question of whether it's you're just not vibing with what's going on with these types of movies, or you're not vibing with Dexter Fletcher. You know what he's doing with them. I mean, it's probably a little bit of both. You know, you did say up top that, uh, you know, you're not a huge, like, fan of a lot of musical acts from this era. So I imagine, like, I, I don't know exactly what your reaction, but um, I imagine we had different reactions sort of to the musical sequences in the movie. Um, because, like, personally, I love, like, a lot of Elton John's music. I mean, I think that every song in this movie is a banger um, for the most part. And so getting to hear those songs in the big screen was it was great for me and especially because i think the way that they shoot the musical sequences is such an improvement over bohemian rhapsody you know when i came out of bohemian rhapsody i thought you know freddie mercury and queen were such an influential and original and you know creative act there had never been a band like queen before uh when they came along and so to see to use your word uh, such a vanilla treatment of them like it it was not at all what they deserved they deserved something far more original and stylish. And that's not what they got. I think that at least in the musical sequences, this movie does get it right. Because for, for one, this movie is more like a musical than Bohemian Rhapsody was. Yeah, that's a that's a much bigger difference. I, I agree that this felt more like a jukebox musical than right. it did, uh, you know, this drama that that kind of Bohemian Rhapsody. The characters, yeah, they break into songs in the middle of the scene, in the middle of scenes, you know, what you're accustomed to seeing in musicals. But it's not just that, it's the fact that um, Dexter Fletcher brings a lot of fantastical elements into a lot of these scenes. You know, we see him literally blasting off into the air when he's singing Rocket Man. Um, we have this great sequence where he's singing Saturday Night's All Right for Fight, and then they go into an amusement park, and this, you know, an actual fight breaks out in this bar. And um, it's highly imaginative, and I really wish the whole movie had been on the same level as these musical sequences, because I think the problem is that when these sequences aren't happening, what we get is. Uh, you know, to your point, a very tried and true boilerplate musical biopic complete with, you know, all of the ingredients that we're used to seeing in these movies, family trouble, substance abuse, you know, struggle with relationships or sexuality. It's all here, but there's nothing groundbreaking that the movie is doing with any of these ideas. And while, you know, it's wonderful to see and to learn that Elton John has been sober for um, 28 years and that, you know, he's finally found a loving relationship when his mother told him, you know, that he would never find love. I think that those ingredients don't add, add up necessarily to a story worth telling on the big screen. I think that while Elton John's music is absolutely worthy of being broadcast on the biggest screen, you know, you can imagine, I'm not sure that the story is, and maybe that's what we're we're getting from movies like Bohemian Rhapsody and now Rocket Man. That, as good as their music is, not every rock star, you know, has a life interesting enough to be worthy of the big screen treatment. And I think that if you know, so if you're looking for a movie that is going to remind you how much you love Elton John's music, 
then I think this movie is great for that because the music is all here. Like every great song that he has is in this movie. And, you know, it's all done very well, all the musical sequences are. But if you're looking something for something that is more profound, that is something more unique, something you haven't seen before, I don't think that this movie provides that. Um, and, you know, that's a disappointment. But at the same time, I think my expectations were tempered by Bohemian Rhapsody. So at the end of the day, I, I kind of came out feeling like it was a wash a little bit. And, you know, what I, I personally enjoyed parts of this movie, I think that the first 30 to 45 minutes is really, really pretty strong. Frankly, it's not a good movie, but I would probably still recommend it if you're on the fence about seeing it, just because I think most people are going to enjoy it. I mean, if you want to see this movie, then you're probably going to enjoy it because it probably means that you're a fan of Elton John. And much like Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie is a great tribute to his music. So in that regard, the movie does succeed, but in most other regards, I think it's a failure. I think your point at the beginning is is well taken. The, the point about how you know I'm not the like I didn't grow up you know just listening to Elton John or Queen or you know any other band from this era. Even you know even the Beatles, I didn't listen to any of those people like over and over growing up. Of course, when I hear their music, I'm like, yeah, that's a banger. Like I absolutely enjoy that. But I'm not lusting after these type like like reminders of how great these you know musical acts are because. You know, I, I listen to them when they're on. I appreciate them when they're on, but I don't necessarily seek them out. Whereas you're someone who, just generally speaking, much more into music than I am. And also, you know, would be the kind of person who would seek out these experiences. And, and maybe, right, you're not, you, maybe you wouldn't seek them out because you want to watch a good movie, but you want to seek them out because they're great musical acts. And, you know, to your point, uh, you know, later on in what you were saying here, this is a good musical act. Taron Egerton is incredibly competent in his role here. And the problem is just like the, the movie component of it, the storytelling, uh, et cetera, I think falls into the same potholes and pitfalls that Bohemian Rhapsody fell into last year, where it's just not that, it's just not that interesting. And again, it's not even that I think that the live, the lives of these people aren't interesting. It's just that I don't think that Dexter Fletcher, they're just, were, were able to tell a story in, in a way that was captivating. And maybe it's because it's really hard to marry the musical and the, you know, the storytelling, the film, the film, the more film aspect of it. And so again, I, it's hard to make too much of a judgment on whether that's something that is possible. I just can't, I can't sit here and say that I enjoyed this movie. And the only recommendation that I would go, say to go see this movie is exactly to, you know, what you described. If you're on the fence and think that you'd really enjoy the musical components of it, because they are very enjoyable. They're very good. Uh, you know, I heard some songs. I mean, this is how I guess inexperienced I am in terms of Elton John's music that I heard some songs that I'd never heard before in this movie and they were fun to listen to. I enjoyed them. I thought the way that the scenes are set up were, were more interesting and, and quote unquote better than what we got in Bohemian Rhapsody last year. But for me, I also felt tonally that they were very removed from the movie, even more so than than what I mean, I don't know, even more so because I thought actually the the music, the way the music was weaved in to the story in Bohemian Rhapsody was probably quite good. It just didn't do much for me. Whereas this time the musical scenes do a, do something for me, but I don't feel like they're weaved into the plot very well. Like it's just very strange to, to have this quote unquote grounded, you know, story about, you know, this, this individual, this star, this celebrity coming to terms with his sexuality and his parents. And there's some intermix of those two things. Well, then also having these visual effects of him floating while he's playing the, piano or taking off like you mentioned when he is in rocket man it's just tonally the the music doesn't align with the story being told 
And so in that sense, it's, it's a little bit different of a pitfall there, but also something that, that I noticed uh, throughout the course of the movie. Every time I, I got dragged out of the quote unquote moment uh, by the musical sequence, which was welcome because the music was better than the plot and the story. But the two things just didn't go together very well, I felt. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the jukebox musicals. And I wonder if, you know, when you have the sort of story that you're working with, if that's almost not a better route to go going forward, because I think about movies like uh, Julie Taymor's Across the Universe or even Mamma Mia um, and the way that they use the songs, you, you know, use these familiar songs that we all know and love, but place them in an original story that, you know, is created um, for the purposes of the movie. And I wonder if that's not a better route of, because that way, you know, you get to appreciate the music. And I do think, like I said, I think the musical style treatment here in Rocket Man is better than in Bohemian Rhapsody. I think that's the way to go because you you do pay more attention to the music and the lyrics, I think, when it's weaved in the scenes in the way that it is in Rocket Man. But, you know, when it's branched by such an uninspiring story, I, you know, I wonder, it makes me wonder if, you know, you do go the jukebox musical route in the future with some of these stories and, you know, put that music in there that we all know and love, but put a better story around it. And, you know, when you were talking about the first 30 to 45 minutes and you how you enjoyed that more, that was something that I felt like was more aligned with the tone of the the music and the story. They made more sense. It was interwoven a little bit better, I thought. And then once you start getting his adult life, more or less, and when you get the story about him coming to terms with his sexuality, that's when I, th- I felt there was a big divergence between the two thing, the, the, the two elements of the movie. Yeah, I know. I do agree with that as a final point that I think towards the end of the movie, there is the feeling with a couple of the musical sequences that they were just like, we got to get this song in the movie somehow. So let's just put them put, you know, let's just have him sing it for a few seconds here in this scene. But again, the songs are so good. It's it's a little hard to complain about that. But why don't we why don't we turn and focus on what I think one of the strong points of the movie is, which is, as you've already mentioned, the performance of Taron Egerton um, as Reginald Dwight, a.k.a. Elton John. Elton Hercules John, no less. Yeah. Uh, no, Taron Egerton's wonderful. This is the first time I've seen him on on the big screen, and I want to see more of him. He's great. I think that, of course, he has a, a very tall task to take on the persona of Elton John as flam. I mean, we talk about how flamboyant someone like Freddie Mercury was and that's so eccentric. Uh, I think that Elton John was flamboyant and eccentric, maybe to a slightly lesser extent, but also in his own unique way. I mean, the, the costumes that he adorned on screen and his temperament, uh, you know, kind of external facing and internal facing are something that I'm, you know, hopefully aren't the same as Taron Egerton's personality. And I think that's something worth noting. And then of course the added element, the added plus of Taron Egerton being able to sing all the songs. It, it just, it, it's a complete performance in my book. Yeah, you, you mentioned the costumes there. And I just want to say that the costume design is phenomenal in this movie and absolutely needs to get an Oscar nomination. Um, when we get to Oscar season, because it's really amazing how they recreate some of these iconic costumes that um, Elton John is known for. I love the opening shot of the movie where we see him coming through these doors in the distance, um, wearing this like bright orange, like winged outfit that he wears for a lot of the movie during the therapy scenes. Um, And we see, you know, we see sort of like the blurred outline of him in the distance, but we see the costume, and then he gradually walks into the light a little bit more, and we, we see that it's him. I like that shot a lot. But, yeah, in general, the costumes are fantastic in the movie. And, yes, I agree. I think Taron Egerton does a terrific job. And, you know, 
we talked about how Rami Malek, we criticized Rami Malek because he didn't do his own singing. And I think, you know, some people might listen to that and say, well, you know, he's a Hollywood actor. Why would we want to hear him sing his own songs? And I think it's not because we think Rami Malek is somehow going to improve on the songs of Queen, but I think it's because, because when they do do their own singing, you naturally get a better performance out of it because they can weave that, the, you know, the singing and their performance together in a more organic way than, than you can if you're lip syncing to a track and also performing at the same time. And I think we see that in these performance scenes that Taron Egerton, yeah, you, you pointed out, I mean, he's not as good as Elton John, but he's a really good singer. And the performance feels so much more raw and natural in these musical scenes because he's performing what he feels, right, as he's singing these words. So it, it feels more natural. It feels less like he's trying to do an impersonation, whereas I think the Freddie Mercury performance focused so much on the look of Freddie Mercury, right? We had They had to get the look exactly right, whether it was the mustache or the teeth or, um, you know, even the gestures that he made during the Live Aid scene were like the exact same gestures as Freddie Mercury made. I think that here, yes, they have the costumes and the glasses and everything, but Taron Egerton doesn't look overly like Elton John, and they don't really set out to try and make him look overly like Elton John. And I think that's good because it's less distracting and, you know, it lets us focus on the performance more. Uh, than the fact that, oh, you know, it's crazy. We're literally looking at Freddie Mercury right now. Um, and so, and, but yes, in the story as well, I think he, he has some nice scenes, even though I didn't love the story of the movie. I did like, you know, the scene where he goes back to his dad's house after he has become a rock star. Um, and he's supposed to, John Reed, which is uh, Richard Madden's character, has asked him sort of to tell his father about his sexuality. So everybody's on the same page uh, for the, for the press. Um, and he goes back to the, the house where his father is now living with um, his two sons from a different marriage. And they bring like the record, his records in and they bring Elton John records in and ask him to sign the records. And I love sort of the, the hurt and disappointment on uh, Taron Egerton's face in the scene that is compounded when his father like asks him not to sign the record for him, but for one of his coworkers. Um, and I think there's a lot of good nonverbal acting by Taron Egerton in that scene um, and throughout the movie. So, yeah, it's a wonderful performance and a definite step up from Rami. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I have too much to add to that, because I think that's it. I, I think the point around, you know, he doesn't look exactly like Elton John. You don't he do, they don't do go through all the steps and makeup and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, to make him look exactly like it and that being less distracting. And I also like to point out that the fact that Rami Malek looked like. Freddie Mercury in the movie is not his acting ability. Of course, his mannerisms yeah. are, are his acting ability, right? But you know, whether you look like someone, um, like that is that is make. That, I mean, that's a hair and makeup role, right? Like uh, if that's if that's something that's the most noticeable or, or outstanding part of a role, then it's not an acting performance. It's it should go in a different category. Yes, uh, it absolutely should. But that's not the way it went. Um, but you know, we should probably just get over it at this point. Um, Almost certainly. And especially if Dexter Fletcher stops releasing musical biopics, we will get over it. Yeah, but who knows? I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody was a smash, and I don't know what kind of numbers this movie is doing, but I know that Godzilla tanked, so maybe this, um, maybe that means this is doing some good numbers, but I don't know. You know, there are a couple other performances you could point to as the other main performance, but I guess maybe the the second biggest name in the movie is Richard Madden, who plays uh, John Reed. Uh, who becomes Elton's manager after becoming his lover first. 
Of course, Richard Madden, you know, known for his work on television um, in Game of Thrones and also in Bodyguard. Scott, how did you think his work translated to the big screen? I think his work translated fine. It was just, it's a very strange role, I thought. I mean, it, it's obviously so different than anything he's done with Bodyguard or with Game of Thrones. I think he's probably better suited to do an, an action-oriented role, but he, he clearly does also have his gravitas and his suave and that and that persona to put on to a, a more, I don't know, or I should just say a less action-focused character like John Reed, someone who's, you know, clearly a scheming, conniving person, but, you know, he's not punching people or or shooting anyone um to accomplish his goals he's much more nefarious probably is a better way to put it in this movie and you know it never at any point in the movie feels like john reed really cares about elton john and i think it's an easy comparison to who the guy who in bohemian rhapsody who freddie kind of had a a a love affair with absolutely that wasn't his personal manager but it, it was some Somebody related to his personal management, but it wasn't like the top person at the top. I don't remember exactly the name of the character, but that, I think there was a lot of similarities. Uh, I think that I think that there were a lot of similarities to that role, and it was noticeable. And I and I think that they honestly hit similar arcs. And the difference was that you just had Richard Madden uh, instead of somebody who I'd never heard of play, playing the role. So again, I think it was kind of a, a bland role. There wasn't too much to do. There wasn't any sort of character development for that particular character and, and not much uh, grass to chew for Richard Madden uh, beyond the, you know, the, the similar scenes from moment to moment that you see him in where, you know, he's either, you know, getting, you know, sucked off by a pool, by the pool and kind of insulting um, Elton John when he comes out and confronts him or, you know, making out with Elton John in the closet. Like it's just, it's, it's very similar scenes. It felt like a very one dimensional character. I mean, hell who knows? John Reed might be a one dimensional person when he was live. I don't even know. He's also I, actually, he made the character of John Reed also in Bohemian Rhapsody. Fun fact played by Aiden Gillen. Well, uh, I don't know who did it better. Cause I don't even remember that character in Bohemian Rhapsody, yeah. but Richard Madden, like I said, he did good enough. I don't think he stood out either way. And, I'll probably just be waiting to see what he does in his next opportunity. Because again, this wasn't a major role. It was of course his first role on the big screen, but I think that he's yet to prove or, you know, disprove himself, uh, so to speak. And I hope hopefully a a bigger role uh, in another movie will give him the opportunity that I kind of crave for him to really prove that uh, he can translate to the big screen because, you know, even though we knew this wasn't the lead role, of course, coming into the movie, I think this role was even less substantive and even more minor than I had expected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you said, to me, this was one of the clearest moments where this movie is aping Bohemian Rhapsody, like, is in this character, you know, who sort of takes advantage of the loneliness that our protagonist is feeling, you know, probably largely because of their sexuality, uh, and takes advantage of that and sort of manipulates them using romantic affection, um, to the point where they just become overly controlling and really sort of horrible um, in the way that they're exploiting our protagonist. I mean, it was very, very similar to, and I, I can't even remember the character of Bohemian Rhapsody either, um, to what he does as well. And I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I hated this character. Um, I think that this character is one of the most, uh, you know, is the most unreal, unrealistic thing in the whole movie. Um, incredibly one-dimensional um like mustache twirling villain to your point, the scene where he's by the pool is absolutely ridiculous. Like there is no way that that happened in real life. I'm sorry. Like 
I know that some of this story is probably like strange but true, but there's no way that that actually happened in real life. And it just seems like in every single scene, they were just beating us over the head with this guy is horrible. You know, look at how horrible it is. Look at how he's taking advantage of Elton John. Like the dialogue they gave him was just so like despicable, like one dimensionally evil that I think it just felt like an absolute farce by the end. I mean, you know, I, I can't, I guess I can't really say one way or the other how I felt about Richard Madden's performance because I just thought the character was so absurd um, that I don't know if I can really separate the two. But this was one of the worst parts of the movie for me. I mean, yeah, just go watch Bodyguard. You'll feel better about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. You've been telling me to do that for a while now. I guess I need to get on that. But No, but just to close the, just to close the loop, like, again, I, I, look, I have no idea what's, like, what was true, what was not true in terms of this story arc. I kind of agree that I was like, wow, I mean, I know that like, like this happens sometimes, but that, I mean, that's, that's next level crazy. Could it have happened? Maybe, but I also want to, I think this is a good time to point out that Elton John is a producer on this movie. And I think that Elton John is probably very invested in making, you know, the people in this past who maybe he still holds grudges and understandably so if, you know, half of what happened between these two happened, like understandably so that he holds a grudge against him and is resentful of how he was treated ultimately by John Reed. But it could also be an instance of him exaggerating the, the truth a little bit as a producer and saying, Hey, let's include this. This is, this is what happened because, you know, what leads into that final scene where right after he, he has that conversation and with Richard Madden's John Reed, it makes you empathize more with Elton John in that position. And I'm not to say that he didn't deserve empathy from everything else that had happened, but I think it might have been one of those moments where a producer who has a very clear stake in how a certain characters are portrayed in the movie and uh, m- maybe took, a, took it a step further and maybe went beyond the, the realm of what we would think would be realistic. Any other performances you want to highlight, Scott? You know, I mentioned Jamie Bell, who plays Bernie Toppin. We have Bryce Dallas Howard as the mother. Uh, Tate Donovan shows up in a uh, kind of funny role as the uh, the proprietor of the Troubadour Theater. Any anyone else stand out to you? Honestly, not really. If I'm if I'm being honest, I think Stephen Graham, who plays yeah, I was going to say Stephen Graham too. He was great. Yeah, Stephen Graham and T- and Tate Donovan, I think, have very similar roles in that. They pop really strong on screen really quickly. I think that Stephen Graham's is probably a better performance because Tate Donovan felt like just Tate Donovan felt so out of place <laughs> in this movie when he came yeah, on screen. He, he did. Like I, but, I mean, I, I laughed. I, I, I guess I liked what they were the 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 laugh. I assumed that they were trying to make me laugh by throwing him in this movie, but it was such a it was so bizarre to see him in that role on screen and then the few lines that he has. Uh, Stephen Graham, I think, is similar in that it, it kind of goes through these quick hit roles uh, in some of these characters. Bryce Dallas Howard is someone we mentioned in Jamie Bell. I think Jamie Bell's character is like fine. It's vanilla. There's not much to do. I'll be really honest. Well, I don't think yeah. that there's. I like oh, the way that they set up like the bromance between the two of them in like the first hour, but then he just like disappears for the last half of the movie, which is probably what happened in real life. Yeah, I mean, that is that is what it is. But I think that like, to your point, they did do a good job with it. And then maybe because of what happened in real life, they just had to like cast that aside. And I was like, well, that I don't know if it's wasted, but it feels like there. I mean, there of course it's it's real. There is real life. There was more to the story, even if the rest of the story was mundane. But it just felt like I got left hanging on something that was interesting that they didn't follow up on. Right? Even if nothing ever quote unquote really happened, the fact that they did a lot of legwork at the beginning, you know, the first hour of the movie that never really felt that there was any follow through on was disappointing. But I think Jamie Bell was fine. Again, I didn't think there was much to that character beyond, you know, after one 
particular scene on the rooftop of their apartment, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was a really nice scene. And then Bryce Dallas Howard, I think, is given a very uh, out, out, outlandish role to play as the as Elton John's mother, Sheila. And again, like felt one dimensional, didn't feel like there was much character development. I guess this is maybe movie is a testament to people don't change. Fathers and mothers don't change. Bad personal managers don't change. Nobody changes in this movie. Uh, and maybe Elton John changes a little bit, of course, with his uh, when he goes to AA and, and starts to ch- turn his life around, so to speak. Uh, which is kind of sprinkled throughout the whole movie. But to me, I just don't know that any of these acting performances really stand out, maybe besides Stephen Graham. And that's just because Taron Egerton is the star of the show. And there are very few other characters who are given the opportunity to to stand out with the exception of maybe Richard Madden, who, but that character disappointed. I liked Bryce Dallas Howard here. I mean, I generally enjoy her as an actress. Um, I think that she's given a, a certainly a more difficult role than the the father. I mean, the father is like basically from the the moment he is introduced on screen, like he doesn't care about Elton John. Like I think that Bryce Dallas Howard's character is a little bit more, is a little bit different and, and more difficult because she is very much a part of his life, but that's the problem for her is that he's, you know, become a burden to her. And the fact that, you know, he, when he comes out and he, and she just tells him that, you know, you'll never be loved by anyone. Like, you know, that's fine that you're, you're, you're gay, but like, you'll never be loved by anyone. Um, and then later on, you know, it is even more explicit in that scene in the restaurant. I think that, um, she does a nice job of, um, sort of holding her cards close to her chest a little bit early on in the movie. Uh, and then, you know, revealing them, albeit very dramatically, um, in, you know, those couple of scenes that I mentioned there, um, when we really do see exactly how awful this character is. And yeah, Stephen Graham is a lot of fun in this movie as Dick James. He's like the stand-in in this movie for the Mike Myers character, sort of in Bohemian Rhapsody. They handled the Mike Myers character in such a stupid way in Bohemian Rhapsody with like all the references to, oh, hey, look, it's Mike Myers, um, you know, and him making the Wayne's World reference and all that. Um, whereas here, he's just kind of a fun comic relief character. He has like a Cockney accent. He, he sounds like he's like a tough guy out of a Guy Ritchie movie or something. Um, and so I really appreciate it. Uh, some of the the comic edge that he brought to this movie. But other than that, I agree. Uh, not anyone that really stands out. All right, Scott, um, you know, before we wrap up, why don't we talk a little bit in a little bit more detail, if there is more to say about, you know, both the music of the movie and the plot, maybe the way that the two things are intertwined together. Yeah, I think I, I probably have said my part probably in fair share about how the music, what the music did, what the plot did, and also how they intermix. So just to you know re- rehash that now, I think that the music is really great. Like even the songs that I hadn't heard before were really fun to listen to. It sounds like for what you've said that you thought the music throughout this was, you know, was the best part. We're all bangers. You were really vibing with the way the musical scenes played out. And it sounds like we both weren't vibing with the plot and the story that it told for reasons that, again, we've kind of already gone over already. And for me, there are moments in this movie where the plot and the music, I think, are woven well together. And then there are plots where I find it really, you know, disorienting and and, and the two parts don't mesh together at all whatsoever. Maybe because the music is better than the plot it's hard to complain that the, that the music didn't mesh well with the pot, right? Plot. Cause if it did, it probably would have sucked, <laughs> but it, it's notable in that not only did, uh, not only did the plot not work for me, it also created a scenario where I felt like I had to be jerked around back and forth 
from the music to the plot every single time it switched gears in the especially in the last like two thirds of the movie. Yeah, I think even in the scenes where they're not where they don't mesh quite as well, I was still vibing a lot with the musical scenes just because it's something different, right? And like they, you know, they get kind of weird in some of these musical scenes. And I appreciated that. I was like, they need to get weirder, right? Because Elton John is weird. Queen is weird. If we want to make a movie that really pays homage to the legacy of these artists, you know, you got to get a little weird sometimes. So I appreciated that they were at least making an attempt at that in some of these musical scenes, even if it didn't always go well with what was going on. Um, I think I was just excited to see a little bit of imagination in a movie that I think otherwise is a little bit lacking in that department. I I framed it in a way that the music drags me out of the plot. You could argue that the plot drags me out of the music. You could easily reverse that argument and frame it in a different way, which maybe is something that makes more sense to say since the music was good, not the plot. Yeah. All right, Scott, why don't we move into our wrap up now? What was your favorite scene or moment from Rocketman? I think the the titular song, I mean, it's got to be a musical piece, right? So, And I think the titular song was that. It, you talk about get weirder, right? There's not a weirder moment yeah. in this movie than when he shoots off into outer space, right? I, you know, it's so unexpected and weird from what the rest of the tone of the movie, right? Or I should say, again, referencing the plot there. But for me, the song is a great song. I love that song. It's one of the songs that I did know, of course, going into the movie. And the performance is awesome. I think the choreography of how, of like him coming back out and I think that a close second to that scene would be the the one that he performs in the Troubadour yeah. when he first like really breaks in and starts jazzing it up and the crowd goes uh, crazy for it, of course. As inauthentic as that crowd felt to the music that was being played, I thought that the – I mean the music itself, the performance from Taron Egerton and that song, it's it's a banger. Yeah, no, I think those are both good. I, and I like the way that that Rocketman scene starts out too with him having tried to commit suicide and he's you know drowning – starts singing this song and he sees the younger version of him. And then all of a sudden everyone jumps in the pool and, you know, comes to pull him out. Um, I liked that. Uh, I thought, I thought that that was well done. And again, imaginative, but yeah, for me, I I think it's that crocodile rock scene in the troubadour. Um, I love the way that he, he comes out and this is his chance to make, uh, make a name for himself uh, in front of a a big crowd, a famous crowd. And first sings the first few lyrics of the song, like acapella, um, and then, yeah, starts banging away, gets the crowd really into it. And of course, that's when he also floats above the piano. Although, of course, he did not really float in real life. There, There is a, a picture, um, apparently, where that, that shows him like where he's playing the piano at the Troubadour. He's like almost all the way off the ground. So that was mildly inspired by the real um, life event. So I, I did enjoy that. And I also enjoyed hearing... One of my favorite Elton John songs, which is not one of his most well-known songs, but Take Me to the Pilot. Um, I enjoyed the fact that they put it in the movie, but it was in the sex scene. So I felt a little uncomfortable. Um, you know, I wanted to sing along, but I, I don't I didn't feel that that was particularly appropriate in the moment. Um, so that was but I, I'm glad that they showed some love to, to take me to the pilot. Um, Quite literally, they showed some love. Yeah, really. Yeah. OK, Scott, why don't we put a score on it? I'm giving this one a five point six. Yeah, I'm right there at a 5.7. I think that I, – I do think it's a better film than Bohemian Rhapsody. My score may not exactly reflect that if you go back and listen to whatever I gave Bohemian Rhapsody. But I think that my rankings have have evolved a little bit to where I, I definitely factor the quality of the movie in a lot more. I think that if we were to re-rate Bohemian Rhapsody today, it would definitely be lower on the list. And with, with, you know, with that said, I think that this is one of those movies where 
if I was just rating on my own personal enjoyment level, you know, this is probably going to end up higher than a few movies that quality wise I might put at, you know, in the six range. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's totally fair. And I think that was something that we were talking about off air before we started recording that, you know, because I, I made that, that direct comparison myself. I'm like, look, like, I don't exactly remember what score I gave Bohemian Rhapsody, but I'm probably going to give this one a lower score, and even though I do think it's a better movie. And that's because if I were to go back and rewatch Bohemian Rhapsody and rescore it, it would be lower. I would rate that movie lower, you know, much as there are scenes to enjoy in Rocketman. This movie just didn't do much for me, and that's why it's coming out at a, a very average or even, you know, below average score. Yeah, it's all semantics in the end. No one's really, like, dragging us for our... Uh, being hypocritical in our scores or anything, but um, sure. nice to explain uh, our, our methodology regardless. Well, Scott, I think that we can both agree that Rocketman is a bit of a letdown, but after the break, we will be looking ahead to some films that hopefully won't let us down as we trudge through the latest movie news and trailers, including trailers for The Goldfinch, Rambo, Last, Bro- Last Blood, and In Fabric. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, let's get into some of the latest news items this week. It was a little bit of a light week uh, for news, but we did learn, first of all, that Chris Hemsworth um, has reportedly turned down a chance to be in Star Trek IV. Um, I believe that Chris Pine already turned them down to reprise his role as Captain Kirk. This seems to be maybe like it's a money thing, but also maybe it's a – these movies just haven't really taken off with audiences in the way that a lot of other – big franchises have do you have any thoughts on this scott yeah i mean obviously beyond star trek beyond was such a big disappointment when it came out as you know that kind of the third movie in the in the revamped star trek universe of course starring chris pine so you know when chris hemsworth had this opportunity to go come back and reprise his role as i can't remember his father's name but that's the role that chris hemsworth played and honestly it was the first role that we saw him you know in this kind of mega in in a mega box office movie that you know because this came out because that movie came out before thor and so it mm-hmm. was a it was a nice soft intro to him before we got you know obviously a huge you know a huge performance from him in the likes of Thor and then the Avengers and of course the rest is history. But it, it's interesting to see him turn that down. I think that it would it's probably a role that he would come back to, and maybe it does come down to money, right? But I was reading the article that was associated with that. I think it came from Variety, and they were talking about from an interview that they had with him that he said that it didn't really seem like they they had a movie to make so to speak, yet. And I don't know if yeah. that's just a allusion towards him not being that interested uh, or really the problem and the hiccup was that they just didn't find a story worth telling. Right, you know, Chris Hemsworth is a superstar. Chris Hemsworth, you know, when he's in a movie, he's a headliner and he gets people in seats. And if he doesn't probably want to be, and understandably so, he doesn't want to spend, you know, six months, however much how much time he'd spent um, preparing for and doing this role doing something that's not going to be, you know, well-regarded and, and make a lot of money. And that's not because he wants to make a lot of money. That's because he wants to make movies that matter. And Star Trek Beyond and that series right now, it, it doesn't seem like it really mattered. And so until they have something that's a really compelling story to tell that Chris Hemsworth believes in, that he's not going to try to make that movie. He's going to make something like Hulk, that Hulk Hogan biopic. And, you know, we have our doubts about whether or not that movie will will be satisfying and will be what we want it to be because Hulk Hogan is a producer on it. But 
at least that you know that's something that he at least believes in or or he's getting paid enough to not care about what he believes in and yeah. who knows right but i think that he he wants to spend you know he has to choose his projects carefully because i'm sure he's getting offer after offer to do these projects because he's parts of so many franchises now i mean of course he's part of marvel but now he's going to be part of men in black and so those add up and if he becomes a you know integral part of a star trek franchise then you have to he, he has to think about that too and so i don't know if this is a bad move or a good move on his part but I'm glad he's not just doing movies to make movies. He's you know he's making choices. He's choosing wisely. And because Chris Prine also has said that you know at this time he doesn't want to do another Star Trek movie, I think that that's probably telling to the state of the Star Trek franchise. Yeah, I mean, I will say I really did enjoy the first two movies in this franchise, but I did not even see the third movie. I don't even remember. I honestly don't even remember it coming out. And you know, honestly, I have not really thought about this franchise very much over the last few years. I think it really has been surpassed by a lot of other stuff that's out there. So it makes sense that maybe, you know, Chris Hemsworth is indicating that they don't really have any direction with this new movie because I don't think that they have grabbed the audience uh, that they wanted to grab in the same way that a lot of other franchises have. Sony, um, who, of course, uh, has some Spider-Man um, IP uh, they're interested in introducing Venom into the third Spider-Man movie that is going to be in the MCU a few years from now, I, I guess, because you know we haven't even had the second one come out yet. Uh, but they want to introduce the Venom that we were introduced to in his standalone movie last year um, into the MCU. Personally, Scott, can't see this happening. I feel like you probably agree with me there. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it makes total sense. Sony wants to put Tom Hardy into the Spider-Man universe because Venom was a really successful movie. And if they could further integrate their characters into the you know the Marvel box office in the in the entire event that is a Marvel movie coming out, that would be something that they'd want to do. Again, this is just this is a strong rumor, right? Like hard rumor on this one. A lot of the times, all the things we talked about are you know quote unquote rumors, but are really kind of confirmed, right? These are like solid sources solid reporting and this one i think from the sources that i saw these coming from is that it is it is strong emphasis on rumor that they're going to add uh tom hardy's venom to this it makes sense that they want to yes it is the spider-man ip but it is the marvel cinematic universe and so i just can't see marvel you know wanting to put venom in that movie because tonally it's so different like that venom is so different than what they've created with tom holland's spider-man i think that Yes, Marvel cares most about, like, first and foremost, probably about making money, and Venom did make bank at the box office, but Marvel's also interested in making good movies, and honestly, Venom wasn't a good movie. Yeah, I think that's, you know, ultimately what it boils down to for me, and, uh, you know, maybe also the fact that this movie is probably several years off. Um, I mean, who knows what kind of vision they have um, for this next entry in the Spider-Man franchise. I mean, as well put together as the whole Infinity Stone saga was. Part of me feels like Marvel already knows exactly what they want to do for this third movie. And I think introducing Venom into that might just disrupt their their best laid plans. But we will see whether this comes to fruition or not. Yeah, and, and, so, and just to re-reference that point and then kind of hammer it home, like I just think the tone of Venom and the tone of Spider-Man yeah. Homecoming and I, what I assume will be the tone of Spider-Man Far From Home, I just don't see them aligning very well. Yes, they made Venom PG-13, which I think was part of the problem. I think there were lots of problems in that movie, but making it PG-13. But if they wanted to make a good Venom movie, the, the movie that I'm sure Marvel's like, you know, this is the movie you should be making with this character, even though we know we're not going to do this, obviously. You know, that would be an R movie, right? And they can't afford to make a R Spider-Man movie. Like they, yes, they, like it would make a lot of money. Yes, we've seen 
big box office releases like Deadpool and Logan make a lot of mo- money as R- as an R-rated movie. But Marvel's not in the business of making $700 million movies. They're in the business of making billion-dollar box office hits. And there still hasn't been any proof that you can make a billion-dollar movie with, that has an R rating. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, what is Deadpool maybe like the closest that anybody's come or the, hang- the Hangover? Yeah, yeah, Deadpool, I think, grossed close to yeah. $800 million. Um, But yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if they can get there even if it's in the MCU. Yeah, because Spider-Man Homecoming didn't even make a billion dollars. So I think right now, Marvel and Sony too, For the, I mean, it's not like Sony doesn't care about money. Uh, like Sony and Marvel just want, the, like all of Marvel's thinking about and focus on is making sure that this money, this movie, and I think it will, breaks a billion dollars. And I think it'll do it pretty comfortably uh, with Endgame coming you know, right before it, et cetera. And also the content of the movie being about the aftermath of Endgame. So I think that it's poised to break a billion dollars. And then all, you know, at that point, you can start having the conversation around, all right, what are we going to do with the third one? I'm sure Kevin Feige has a very clear idea of what he wants Sony and Amy Pascal and all the people who own that Spider-Man property over at Sony to do with that movie and integrate it into their world. But I just don't see a world where that involves Venom. I concur. Um, speaking of uh, other Marvel news outside the MCU, Scott, uh, we learned a little that new mu- that the reshoots for the New Mutants, the movie that we have differing opinions on whether we will actually see ever see it. Although, I mean, this this perhaps gives me a little bit more faith that, that it will actually come out. That the reshoots will be continuing this year. Um, we got that news from Simon Kinberg, the producer, who of course is also directing Dark Phoenix, that comes out next week. Yeah, so this was an interview with Simon Kinberg where he was giving some details both about Dark Phoenix and New Mutants, but it sounds like it was just a a little time for him to dump on Fox and praise Marvel, his new overlord. Uh, And and that's mainly just because they're better organized than Fox as they they know how to get these reshoots done. They know how to schedule. Then it, It sounds like such basic things, right? But it sounds like Fox was just kind of a mess over there when it came to that stuff. And Marvel's a lot better. So it's going to happen. Those reshoots are going to happen later this year. It's scheduled. It's just got to you know get done, get edited, and get out the door. So I'm pretty confident now that in, I think it is going to get released. I think they will release it in theaters because they're spending these money on these reshoots. They are putting a little bit of care into it. I think the biggest question for what this movie is going to be, right, is whether or not Josh Boone comes back for the reshoots. It doesn't sound like from the article that I was reading in the interview that – or I should say related articles that I was reading that Josh Boone is someone who they've particularly gone out of their way to make sure is available – for these for these reshoots and that would leave Simon Kinberg to direct and you know we haven't seen X-Men Dark Phoenix yet we're going to see that later this week and of course it's the movie we're talking about next week on the podcast but I'm not too optimistic about that and I you know Simon Kinberg as the writer for X-Men the last, last stand the first time they did they did this movie I mean that movie was the worst of that original trilogy I, I mean I don't know if this movie will be worse than Apocalypse but I'm not super optimistic about what Kinberg is doing with this movie and so you know, I'd much rather have Josh Boone back to make sure that authentic flavor and feel of what he was going for with the horror elements of the new mutants. I'd rather make sure that, you know, he comes back and gets those elements into the reshoots and into the movie throughout than Simon Kenberg take over halfway through and do whatever, you know, half-baked stuff. I'm just, you know, maybe at Dark Phoenix will come out this week and I'll be like, you know what, never mind. About face. I'm yeah. excited. I'm excited about Kenberg, maybe adding his uh, flavor to it. But I don't know. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think that whether Dark Phoenix is good or not will probably determine ultimately what my feelings are on this movie um, and how much I actually want it to happen. But, you know, it does have Anya Taylor-Joy in it. So that it has that going for it in, in my book. The- yeah, and it has Macy Williams. Yeah. I mean, the, the young act, I mean, that's one of the things that's been so hard about this trailer, I think, or sorry, not trailer, sorry, this movie, is that it, it, <laughs> you have all these young actors who, when they first shot the movie, were 
you know, not as famous as they are now. And so they're all super busy doing TV shows, doing other movies. Uh, and so it's not easy to schedule these on the calendar and get these reshoots done. Uh, and so I think that's definitely one of the problems that they've had. And it makes you wonder whether the reshoots are going to look really strange, right? With the characters more aged, et cetera. I don't know how they're going to work that. Maybe they'll do some CG. Uh, we'll see. But I think there's a lot of work still have to do in this movie. And we'll see what the final product looks like. Yes, we will. All right, Scott, looking outward a little bit uh, under the broader Disney umbrella, uh, Mark Webb is in talks to direct a new live-action adaptation of Snow White. What a surprise. We're doing another live-action Disney movie. Mark Webb, of course, known for uh, directing 500 Days of Summer as well as the uh, Amazing Spider-Man movies. Uh, Any thoughts on this? I honestly have absolutely no thoughts on this one whatsoever. I don't think – I mean, Snow White – correct me if I'm wrong here, Scott, or maybe you don't know, but I think Snow White was the original – Disney animated movie. So it's, I think it's, yeah, it's a uh, particularly interesting that they are now adapting that to live action. And I think that that is probably uh, holds a lot of significance as, you know, you're taking the first, you know, it's place in history is yes, it's a great animated movie. I enjoyed it very much as a kid. I love the dwarves, uh, the seven dwarves, but you know what? Like, does this need to be made? It's the question we always ask. like, yeah, does, what are the freaking seven dwarves going to look like in live action? Well, there was a funny joke that I actually saw. You that, thought the genie looked bad. I mean, come on. I mean, I mean, I think the clear answer is that Mark Webb shouldn't be directing this movie. Peter Jackson should be directing this movie and get, get <laughs> yeah. his hobbits in there. Yeah, no kidding. Um, as much as I may not be a fan of Lord of the Rings, I, I definitely recognize the talent he has at least for, creating those characters that don't look absolutely horrible. Anyway, Mark Webb, I, do, I just don't care. <laughs> I think that's all there is to say. I'm with you on that. I, I could not stand those amazing Spider-Man movies, so not a name that gets me on board. Um, Scott, final news item before we talk a few trailers. Um, just following up on last week, we talked about Robert Pattinson likely being in the Batman, and then we had some news this week that, oh, maybe actually they were still doing some screen tests between him and Nicholas Holt. Um, and then the next day, we did get the confirmation that Pattinson has been cast, um, which I guess, you know, the, the new item here is what exactly is Nicholas Holt's role? You know, what was he testing for Batman or was he testing for perhaps a different role in this movie like the Riddler? Yeah, you know, that's what I heard. Right. And we heard that the Penguin and Catwoman were going to be the main antagonists of the movie. But I think coming out of this news that Robert Pattinson has been confirmed as Batman is that Nicholas Holt may have been screen testing for the Riddler who is expected to star in this movie along with the Penguin and Catwoman. And Robin is also supposed to be in this movie as well, coming out of that same that same release. And so I've heard that there are a couple comic book runs that this is setting up to match. Some uh, There's one called The Long Halloween, which these characters set would match up well to. And so, you know, I think that, you know, we're starting to get an idea that things are starting to take shape. Of course, it's possible that they f- they make a new story or maybe they adapt a couple ones together into one, something like that. We don't know exactly what's going to be happening, but I'm, ex- I'm getting, ex- I'm not going to ask, I'm getting excited. I think that Nicholas Holt, you know, we both loved him, you especially in The Favorite last year. And I would be, you know, really excited to see. I was just saying, and he's great in Mad Max Fury Road, too. I mean, he's he's a great actor. You know, and I like him in these in the new X-Men movies as, as, as Beast. Yeah. And so... I think that this is this is setting up to be a situation where I'm starting to get excited. Of course, we're not going to get this movie for a couple of years, but the the actors and actresses and the roles that we're seeing in this movie, it you know, it feels like a proper Batman movie. It's not something that you know is going to be some weird adaptation in in the um, you know in the DCEU. Of course, it is going to be in the DCEU, right? But it's not going to be some it's not going to be something like Batman versus Superman, which yes, I'll, I'll you know I did like and I did enjoy, but it didn't feel like a proper Batman movie. Right, and and so I'm excited just at the feeling of getting uh, of having a proper Batman movie. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see Nicholas. Holt. I mean, I, I hope that the news is that he was testing for some other role because I would love to see him in 
uh, some role in this movie, whether it's Robin or Riddler. I feel like he would could be a good fit for either one of those. Um, so hopefully, you know, we will see both of these um, gentlemen in the final product of the movie. But um, who knows going forward? OK, Scott, let's talk yep. about a few trailers now uh, that we got this week. Uh, first of all, we got a first trailer for one of my top five most anticipated movies uh, of the year based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Donna Tartt. The Goldfinch, um, and we got our first look at Ansel Elgort, Nicole Kidman, uh, Finn Wolfhard, and the rest of the cast here in this uh, John Crowley-directed film. Scott, what are your thoughts on this trailer? You know, it, it got me excited. I'm not going to lie. Like, you know, I haven't read the book. I can't remember if you have or not. I know you're such a big oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you've read the book. You're excited about it because you know what it's about. I don't know if I loved this trailer. It felt almost too much like a sizzle reel. It was almost just like the trailer itself was almost disorienting at times. There were moments of it that were better than others, but it did still manage to get me excited about the movie. It managed to remind me that I'm really excited about some of the performances in this. I'm a little bit like curious about what Jeffrey Wright's going to be because I didn't love the moments that I saw from him in the trailer as much as I do actually like Jeffrey Wright. As for um, Ansel Elgort, I'm, very on board with that performance, but I think I just need to see a little bit more because I, you know, I've read the synopsis description on Wikipedia for this movie, and I don't know if I got more than that. I would say I even got much less than that in this trailer. So I just I'm waiting to hear a little bit more. We know there's a pretty robust cast list for this movie, and we got only mere glimpses of some of these characters, and some of them we didn't even see at all. So I'm just very interested in what this movie is going to be. I'm excited for seeing another trailer that might get me a better understanding of what I should expect from what this movie is trying to go for. Uh, and, and, you know, we talk all the time about not needing to know what a movie is about going into it. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying I need to know more about what this movie is about. I just need to get a clear sense of what this movie is going to be, not what it's going to be about, but like the feel of the movie. I think I need a little bit more from the next trailer about that because you had this kind of surreal sort of music going on in the background, ethereal, almost music kind of set, you know, set this trailer up and you get this voiceover narration, which I, I thought was fine. It didn't bother me that much. And, and then it felt like there was just a bunch of like a whole sizzle reel from different time periods. Cause we know this movie spans several time periods. And, and so you get a little bit of it, but I didn't feel like I got very much. I think I just want a little bit more still. I think part of the problem, Scott, is that the story of the goldfinch is so epic and sprawling uh, that mm-hmm. it's hard to condense it into a two and a half minute trailer. Of course. And I think that, that, you know, the, the art museum bombing, right? Like that's the hook into the story, but the story really, yep. that's not really what the story is about. It's more of a, you know, buildings Roman. It's a coming of age tale that spans generations. And so I think that um, it is a little hard to convey that in a trailer. And so I, I, I see where you're coming from on that. And I don't necessarily disagree that the trailer maybe didn't give us a great sense of what this movie is. Uh, but I do think that what I saw in the trailer was encouraging. I think that the tone of the movie seems to match that of the book. I think that I liked some of the use of voiceover narration, actually, because I think that th- this is going to be interesting to see because this is the first time one of her books has been put on screen. And I mean, she only has three. So, right. Her stories are so good. But part of the reason they're so good is because of her language and her, you know, her writing is just so meticulous. And of course, you can't capture that on the big screen. So I'm not opposed to a use of voiceover narration here. I just hope they don't overdo it. But I think that if you really want to capture the beauty of this story, you got to get some of that in there. So I I did like hearing some of the voiceover, at least in the trailer. Yeah. All right, next trailer. Um, A24's latest horror movie, 
Um, of course, they have a good track record here in the horror department with movies like The Witch and Green Room and Hereditary. Um, this one's going to be called In, In Fabric. It is from uh, Duke of Burgundy director Peter Strickland, and it is the story of a killer dress, Scott. Um, I, I, I'm not sure what your feelings are going to be on this trailer, but maybe not so positive. No, not so positive on this one. <laughs> I I thought this I thought this looked really silly. Yeah, I think that's kind of the point. Um I'm here for oh, it. It, it, it wasn't in a good way. <laughs> I'll put it that well, way. it looks like a fun sort of B movie horror. Um, and you know, again, I trust a 24 for the most part, not every movie they've put out has been perfect, but, um, sure. that again, they have a good track record in the horror department. Peter Strickland has a good track record as a director, although I've never seen any of his movies. Um, and so I think, yes, the, the premise of the movie is certainly silly. Um, but I trust the people involved, um, to, even if it's just an enjoyable B movie, right? Even if it's just something like Don't Breathe, for example. Um, I'm, it definitely has a low budget feel to it. Oh, for sure. I mean, and maybe that's like the, I mean, that's the art. The, I mean, the feel of the trailer, right? It feels like very artsy, fartsy to me. Cause it's like shot, it's shot in a way that's made, it makes it look like it's really old. I, I did, did nothing about this trailer got me. Well, you're not a horror person anyways. No, I was gonna, and look, like I'm not sitting here saying this, this movie is for me. It's not for me. It's more for you, certainly. And, you know, I hope that, you enjoy it when you see it. And if you enjoy it enough, maybe I'll go see it. But, you know, this could be another A24 directed direct DVD release. <laughs> and, well, it's already screened in some places, I believe, because it... Yeah, so it is under the Silver Lake, but I didn't yeah, stop that's it true. from being, being released on DVD. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, next trailer, Scott. Rambo 5, Last Blood. Um, the, the Rambo franchise is not dead yet. Um, I guess as long as Sylvester Stallone is still alive, so too will this franchise be... I don't think either one of us have actually seen any of the Rambo movies, Scott. Um, so we're definitely coming at this from a distinct disadvantage. But I enjoyed this trailer. What did you think? Hey, the trailer looked good. It had Old Town Road as the music that it was set it to, did have which, Old Town which Road. is a banger. Uh, so I, I, I got on board with that. I will say, as good as the trailer looked, my and you can confirm this, that my immediate reaction to watching the trailer was like, to go watch four Rambo movies before this movie comes out. Somehow I don't think that these are the type of movies where the plot is really that important. No, I don't think so either. But maybe maybe screen junkies will just do a cram it for me and save me the trouble. But yeah, they probably yeah. Will. And, and I, so if I have to watch four movies to go in and, and get something out of this one, I think this movie is going to bomb if that's the case. And two, uh, I won't. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, no, I don't. I think you're probably right. A, a, a cursory read through Wikipedia or cram it from screen junkies will probably suffice. And then maybe I'll just go have some, you know, late summer action fun. Cause I think this movie is set to release in the late summer, if not early fall. Yeah. You know, we've seen how Stallone can really sustain his roles even deep into his, his years um, in the Creed movies with him playing Rocky. And so um, yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to see him in his other most famous role here. You know, I don't have as much experience with this one, albeit. But, um, you know, he still got it for the most part. And it looks like there's going to be some good action in this. So I'm here for it. Stallone has proven that he still has it. He's able to adapt and evolve his old characters into these new, like these new, these new age roles. These, I mean, late, late stage of his life roles for him. Right. And if they can do something like they did with Rocky and Creed, uh, with the, with Rambo in this new movie, then awesome. Like that's awesome because Creed was a fantastic movie and Stallone was a huge part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, love both of those movies. Um, okay, Scott. Um, last trailer, and I mean, it's a, it's really more of a teaser than a trailer. And if you're asking me, we save the worst for last. Um, this is the teaser for the new 
Pixar film called Onward, and it's set in some sort of world of trolls and elves and stuff like that. And you know, we, yeah, you're really selling we got, it right I was now. gonna say we got that from re- reading the an article. But we certainly didn't get it from the teaser because the teaser doesn't really tell you anything about this movie. Yes, it's an upcoming American 3D computer animated fantasy film produced by Pixar. Uh, yeah, no, I this trailer, I mean this teaser. Well, first off, just it was hashtag quite poor. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was it was quite it was quite a poor teaser. I know for you, like this wasn't a movie that even when I mess like messaged you that this trailer was going to drop, and then you you know directed you to the Wikipedia page, you were like, yeah, this looks like it's gonna suck, um, which is probably unfair because <laughs> Pixar makes good makes good well, movies yeah and let yeah let me just say let me defend myself here uh, like yeah that's my initial reaction but as you're saying pixar like they can do it and they've done it before like ratatouille is like one of my freaking favorite pixar movies and it's about a rat an animal that I, is the most disgusting animal on earth um so if they can do that then they can make me you know like elves and trolls and all that so if anyone could do it it's pixar yeah, I mean, this is coming out early next year. So, honestly, like Disney probably, I, I wonder about it, right? Because Disney is releasing this in early March 2020, which is the worst time of the year yeah. <laughs> to release a movie if you want it to be an Oscar consideration for the following year. It's not that it's impossible, but like, it's a weird time to release an animated movie. So, it makes you wonder what Disney thinks of this, and it makes you wonder what, Di- what Pixar, I mean, being a part of Disney, of course, thinks of this. And I imagine we'll learn a lot more about this movie at D23 this year, which I think is in late, again, late summer, or early fall. I can't remember the exact dates for it, but they'll probably release a much more, like a lot more information. There'll probably be a panel. They'll probably drop a new trailer, like a full length trailer for this. We'll learn a lot about it because they have a good voice cast. They have Tom Holland. They have Chris Pratt. They have Julia Lewis-Dreyfus and they have Octavia Spencer. So they have the voice talent to do something with this. They're, I'm not sold on their world and I'm not, I'm certainly not sold on these characters who really is the whole. I mean, that's all that you get in this trailer, like learning this trailer is about the characters. Even they don't seem particularly interesting. We don't really know what the premise of the movie is beyond just the two sentences we read on Wikipedia, which has like this plot primer that I think just came out of a I don't know if it's about from a press release or what it came out of. I just I, I, we'll see. It's just a total we'll see moment because the teaser didn't do much for me, although I am a little bit more positive probably than you are. Yeah, uh, I, I think know. that's the problem. We just don't know right now. I got to say, though, before we do wrap up, they, some very breaking news oh, that wow, we get okay. to cover as we record here. It's that the Ford versus Ferrari trailer oh, just dropped yes. like literally 15 minutes ago. So we're going to take a quick pause. Uh, we're going to go watch the trailer, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. All right, guys, we are back. We just watched the Ford versus Ferrari trailer that literally dropped mid-recording here. Scott, what did you think of that? Oh, baby. I mean, I said to you 30 seconds in, I was like, 30 seconds in, this already looks amazing. And Scott, man, this was our, this was, um, I think like my number six most anticipated movie, or like this is the one that just missed out on my list. And man, this is making me regret not putting in that top five because it looks incredible. Um, Christian Bale and Matt Damon look amazing um, in this movie. Like it looks like they're going to have like a a really fun sort of uh, banter with each other. Uh, James Mangold, really good director. Um, It, it absolutely looks like the feel it has the feel of rush uh, Ron Howard's movie, which is such an underrated and great sports movie from a few years ago. Um, and just the whole story is really interesting to me as well. So I think this is going to be really, really good. 
yeah, no, this looks great. I'm I'm excited to be excited about a role that Christian Bale is going to play. Obviously, with Vice last year, it was one that we acknowledged was a really great performance, but that it was begrudging because uh, we didn't like that movie very much, to say the least. And so this is one I'm excited about. This looks like he's going to absolutely rock it. It wouldn't surprise me at all if he's in, you know, just off this trailer, isn't in the conversation for an Oscar uh, for Best Actor. If it does, you know, if this does play out in the way that this trailer looks right, he'll be probably right up there with Leo. And I don't know if Brad will be a um best actor brad pitt be a best actor or best supporting actor but you know of course leonardo dicaprio from once upon a time in hollywood we're starting to take some things are starting to take shape a little bit in that conversation and i'm excited about it because these guys look freaking great in this movie this movie looks interesting my only question mark coming out of this trailer is will they be able to balance that sports story with the personal story that they're trying that they're teasing a little bit with christian bale and and you know i don't know that i assume that was his son in the opening shot of the trailer, I, I you know, I, I, ongoing and sprinkled in throughout the whole trailer, right? I, I hope that they strike that right balance and and hit all that those emotionally satisfying uh, marks that that you'd expect from a story that's also has a personal element to it. I'm not saying that I don't think they're going to do it, but it's just something that I noticed that they sprinkled in throughout this trailer while the main focus remained on the sports story of Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah, no, I'm, that is always the question, right, with these sports movies. Um, how well that they're going to be able to strike that balance. But man, this is very encouraging. Uh, and I, I can't wait for this one. And I'm glad that this dropped because now we get to end on high note. We don't have to end on onward. <laughs> All right, Scott, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Shelton 2013 And you can find Scott Harvey at Scarvey Dent where he just tweeted about how amazing the trailer looked. So go find him. That is, in fact, a fact. Um, I did just tweet that. And yes, you can find me at Scarvey Dent. Um, we hope you have enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. If you have and you'd like to support the show, don't forget about our Patreon page. But if you choose not to support our Patreon, that is okay, too. We would still love it if you rated and reviewed us on iTunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode on which we'll be reviewing X-Men Dark Phoenix. For now, I'm Scott Harvey. For Scott Shelton, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.